Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So in case you didn't know that chant, I don't want you to feel left out. It's actually, um, for me, partly a way to kind of designate the space in which uh, this talk is happening. And to also indicate for myself and for all of us that uh, it's actually a different way of being that we're practicing here. It's a different kind of conversation that we're having. So this is uh, designated as the Dhamma talk, Dharma talk. And uh, I thought I would describe a little bit today about what does this actually mean, this Dharma? Uh, What are we doing here uh, overall? And some reflections about uh, retreat. So, you know, uh, I mentioned that I've taught in many different kinds of uh, places as I've traveled around and... Uh, so I'm always kind of interested in like what is the container and how it gets created and uh, usually it takes a lot of kind of creativity and also honestly like a lot of uh, things feeling unsettled and uh, unraveled and then figuring them out together. So uh, I think we're on track for all of that happening uh, today so far. So this place is, uh, is the St. John the Divine uh, you know, Anglican uh, place. And I was interested, you know, who is the St. John the Divine? Um, because there's also a, a cathedral in New York City, a big cathedral, St. John the Divine. But uh, I'm a student of comparative religion also from my college days. But I realized I didn't know who this was, so I checked him out. And uh, so he was actually the John who uh, authored the book of Revelation. So this is a book in the Bible, in the New Testament, that's uh, the contents of which is kind of apocalyptic stuff. But I actually like that it was the book of Revelation. I feel like that's very related to what we're doing here. So you could consider in some ways what we are uh, doing as our retreat is uh, we're also trying to read the book of Revelation. But this one is in our own mind and heart and uh, all that we observe through the practice. So what is there to be revealed what is there to understand in this way? And not because somebody else uh, wrote this and told us this is true, but because we were able to investigate this through our own experience, through our own practice, and then understand this. And this understanding and even the investigation is happening on a different level than we usually operate under. So, you know, it, it makes sense that it takes a little while to settle into... A retreat to settle into practice. It's really like a different way of being uh, for most of us, unless you actually live in a retreat center uh, as your daily way of life. You know. So a different schedule, different pace of life, different types of people around, a lot of stuff not around that we're used to having around. And really what we're doing uh, for most of our time is practicing this different way of knowing this different way of understanding things, which is more than just with our thinking mind. 
So that which we're investigating, this Dhamma, is a, this, a translation of it is about nature, or the truth of the way things are. So the helpful thing about that is that it's actually something that's there for all of us to see. It's nature. It's not an you know, esoteric philosophy we have to like memorize or something like that. And this is my favorite metaphor for this is that it's like the law of gravity. So this is like something in, in nature that uh, we can learn about and understand and live in accordance with, but that we don't necessarily know when we are born. So babies don't know about the law of gravity, and sometimes you see them experimenting with this in their uh, high chairs. So they might take something like this and uh, you know drop it off the, top, the side, like fork or spoon. Go oh, like that fell. Right. So then they think, well, like what if I do it on this other side? You know, so pick something else up. And, yeah, like, yeah. Same thing happened there. Right? Then you know, what if what if you try and do that and you're not looking? Then you know? <laughs> <laughs> same thing happens. Right? So then after a while, you get the picture that uh, for some reason you don't even have to understand why. You don't have to understand the mathematical formula. Uh, you don't have to understand who is running this or any of that. You understand this seems to be some law of the physical universe. You know, if I try to place something in midair, it seems to be inextricably drawn to the ground. Uh, so then I start to learn to live in accordance with that. So I have this glass of water that has been nicely filled for me uh, all through the day. So I know if I try to place this in midair, it will fall, break, water splattering, all these people here, and uh, big mess. So to live in harmony, I can place it there, I can place it here, and then there's less mess. Right? So similarly, the Dhamma is, is the truth of how things are, and it's something that, unfortunately, we don't necessarily already know. You know this wisdom is not something that we already know. We know pieces of it, usually, you know, little bits and pieces, and it's actually that knowing of these bits and pieces that usually has drawn us into doing something as crazy as going on a week-long silent meditation retreat, you know, some sort of homing device <coughs> for truth that's coming along, dragging us along. But it's helpful for us to understand this more, and then once we understand the, the principles of, of the way things are, what's true about ourselves, about reality, about the universe, um, about who we really are, then we can live in harmony with that, and there will be less friction, less messes, you know, less broken stuff around. And if by chance, accidentally sometimes, you know, this thing might fall like that, then I already understand the principle, I understand the law, so I don't have to fret about it. You know, I can just bend down, pick it up, put it back, and it's just minus that added element of like, you know, why me? Why does this happen to me? Why now? Why? You know, that, all the dr- dramatic stuff that uh, also is there if we don't understand, like, this is the way things are. So, as we pay attention, we can understand these different principles of, like, who are we really beyond our ideas of who we think we are? What is this that we call uh, reality, that we experience as our life? Uh, What is it that we can actually rely on in this life? And given all this, uh, what is actually the way to be happy? What is the way to find some peace, contentedness, well-being? So one of the, the Buddhist teachings about uh, how life is constructed for us uh, describes that what we call our life is actually this rapid succession 
of experience through six sense doors. So it's the main ones that you learn in kindergarten, right? So seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing. And then the sixth sense door is actually the mind. So what we consider our life is actually the rapid succession of an experience arising with consciousness through one of these sense doors. So seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and then also with the mind, it's uh, thinking. So the mind is considered a sense door which meets objects of thoughts, of images, memories, plans, all of this stuff, is actually simply considered an object that arises in the mind. Now all of these experiences also uh, arise and pass away in rapid succession. So kind of like how a film appears like a solid uh, thing, solid experience, but actually when you uh, can look more closely, it's a bunch of different pictures you know, that are like frames that are run together very quickly. So it seems solid, but actually it's these like... So that's actually what's going on in our experience of life. Now we don't usually have the concentration to be able to see the individual frames, but it's possible to develop that. But also another reason that we don't see this is because we aren't paying attention a lot of the time. (laughs) And uh, this is often the first insight that people have. Even those of you who have been on retreat a lot, right? you get to re-experience this insight about how much we're not actually present. And this is actually a good insight to have because you were also not present before you knew that. You just didn't know you were not present. (laughs) So it's bad news, but actually good news. Uh, Because this gives us some incentive. You know, when we start to see, like, wow, how much of the time do I spend in my imaginings about things or... Uh, in my imaginary world, or my projection of what's going to happen, or you know, all different kinds of things like that. So we see particularly that this this mind sense door and our relationship to that uh, is a very helpful one to be able to see, to see clearly, to see through. You know, much in the way that I described this understanding gravity. You know, what is the relationship that we have to that which arises in the mind? Also very helpful is understanding our relationship to the body. So these very simple, basic things that we're doing, like you know, walking back and forth and paying attention, um, for most of us, is not something that we spend our time usually doing. And usually we're weighted towards uh, focusing on thinking, focusing on seeing, but not necessarily focusing on connection to the experience of the body. And a lot can be revealed in these very simple exercises. On the first level, a lot gets revealed that we usually have been pushing away. So oftentimes, there's a lot of stuff that is difficult for us to see and uh, unpleasant or painful. Uh, And we spend some time during our regular life kind of putting on blinkers, trying to push this stuff away. And here in this practice, the structure of our activity is actually, uh, you could say even every time you come to sit, it's a very courageous action. So in some way you're saying, okay, for this half an hour, 45 minute period, uh, let me be with whatever it is that arises in the body and mind and see that as clearly as possible. Let me just know that which is here uh, for just what it is. So already we're actually disrupting our usual way of being. And we may not have noticed that that's not our usual way of being, that kind of, you know, meeting everything as it is. But 
as you start to pay attention, we can see, like, oh, and, and you start to notice even little things about your body. Sometimes it's kind of funny things on the surface, like, wow, I haven't cut my toenails in a long time. <laughs> like, oh, my elbow hurts. How did that happen? When did that come? Or, uh, you know, little things like that we notice. But then even on a more, more and more detailed level, you know, we start to notice the experience of the body, uh, including just noticing the fluidity of it, you know, that which we thought was solid, which we relate to as ourselves, as some permanent entity, is actually not so. So here in retreat, we're practicing these, uh, the three ones that are traditionally mentioned are about sila, so this uh, practicing of the precepts and integrity, and that's really an important container that supports our uh, development of awareness and of wisdom. Then we're practicing uh, samadhi, so this is the development of the collectedness of mind, developing uh, the training of mind with the mindfulness, or a uh, better translation I like is the heartfulness. So that brings the sense of the warmth or uh, connection part of it, you know, as opposed to looking at something from the distance. And then the fourth one is the cultivating wisdom, so panya wisdom, uh, which is through <coughs> clarifying our understanding of dhamma uh, and uh, clarifying our view, you could say, of what's actually true. Now, supports for this uh, there are certain qualities and uh, qualities of heart and mind that uh, support us in our practice. And one of the big ones that we're really undertaking on retreat is uh, renunciation. And the order of, of nuns here also is, uh, you know, that their, their order is like one which already has that sort of baked into the structure, a lot of renunciation. And I respect that about people who take on the spiritual, the religious life in some way, you know. Even in different traditions, and, you know, there's some amount of renunciation usually required that's beyond your kind of everyday person level. And the uh, common ones that the, in Christian, uh, the way it's described in Christianity, the, the vows that people take in Christian orders are of um, poverty, obedience, and chastity. I should mention also that uh, you know, for many of us who are here, we might have different relationships to being in a Christian center. And, and it's good to recognize that. So for some people, maybe you feel right at home, and it's great. Some people are like, we should put paper up over every single crucifix here. Like, why do you have them around? <laughs> you know, have past trauma from religious school or experience or something like that. So it's just good to honor that and work with that, but partly why I'm kind of framing it in this is because the symbolism is all around us, and uh, myself, I was actually also raised as a a Catholic, as a Christian, Um, and I broke up with the Catholic Church when I was about 12, Uh, but then, you know, over some time came to some, uh, I think, kind of integrated way of uh, viewing it that was uh, less suffering for me. I'm not trying to push that on you at all, but it's interesting, you know, from the standpoint of, like, understanding the different qualities and characteristics, particularly with people who are spiritual practitioners of different uh, stripes, you could say. You know, what we share, what, what there is that we can appreciate and respect about each other. 
So I was saying, so this you know poverty, obedience, chastity thing, and uh, I think the Buddhist framing of this would basically be renunciation, renunciation, and renunciation. <laughs> <laughs> so we're already practicing this uh, in many ways, and the poverty one is about uh, letting go of pursuit of material gains, uh, of living simply. And uh, there's, there's actually, you know, a questioning of the mainstream way of thinking, which is that, you know, in order to be happy, the way to do that is to, like, amass as much wealth as possible and to uh, get as much wealth and power so that you can create pleasant conditions for yourself in as many categories as possible for as long as possible. It's usually not spelled out explicitly as that, but basically every single advertisement, <laughs> like the entirety of capitalism and marketing, is like oriented towards that as a strategy for happiness, right? Uh, and so, you know, the, the underlying theory behind that is that you're happy when you have pleasant experiences, you're unhappy when you have unpleasant experiences, and so let's get as many pleasant experiences as possible and try to line that up forever until death. And then if you're more ambitious, you'll even try to cheat death also, right? You know, <laughs> cryogenically frozen, this and that, right? So the, the Dharma perspective on this, when you examine this even a little bit more closely, I think, uh, is that it's actually impossible to do that. Yeah. So actually, if, if all of the experiences that come and go in the body, and the mind, uh, the weather what other people do, uh, they're all subject to change, and we all get a mixed bag. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Ups and downs, ups and downs. So you can recognize this on kind of the microscopic level. So each of these different moments coming in through the sense doors is going to be pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And it's actually impossible to line them all up as pleasant all the time. And then even on the larger kind of macro level, as we start to notice, you know, things don't go according to our plans. You know, so we've typed on the schedule, dinner is at this time, but then the door is not opening. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, how are we going to relate to that? <laughs> so these are, it's, it's helpful to notice this stuff because it's, it's not actually true that the more that you have necessarily, or, you know, the, the happier you are. And even from, you know, paying attention to, like, People, if you ever met people who have like huge amounts of money or wealth, uh, they're not necessarily the happiest people. Or in the U.S., we have some magazines like you probably have this like you know Us Weekly, People magazine, and stuff like that, right? And it you know uh, documents the lives of rich and famous people, rich, famous, good-looking people. Um, but most of the magazine is about their uh, the disasters of their life, actually. You know? <laughs> so about the breakups they have, and you know going to rehab, and uh, this divorce and um, you know this accident and so on, right? Uh, sometimes happy things, but basically you can see even just from a reading of that magazine gives you the dharma, right? It's like, <laughs> like you know, there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness in life, and even being <coughs> rich, famous, good-looking is not going to save you from that. So this vow of poverty is actually a radical one, but it's um, in line with understanding that maybe there's another way. And, and maybe actually it's the opposite way. Maybe actually the renunciation of possessions of stuff, or particularly about the pursuit of stuff, the obsession with stuff. It's not even the stuff itself, right? It's, it's actually the relationship of the mind to stuff. 
in our endless tracking that down. Uh, that's where suffering lies, and that's actually where freedom can lie. So the in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, actually, the, the monks and nuns are on, like, extreme renunciation, right? So many of you probably know this. So not only do they give up their uh, hair and their clothes and their celibate, but they give up uh, eating afternoon, and they give up uh, singing, dancing, music, entertainment. Um, they give up uh, having any money, so basically having any financial agency. So they're completely reliant on what is offered to them. Actually, each day, in fact. And they're not allowed to store up food for next time. Like, no Tupperware, nothing like that. You know, just like, next day, clean slate, go out, hope someone puts food in your bowl, right? Or not, right? Uh, so it's helpful to, to orient towards this. You know, even as we come on retreat, in some ways, like, we're practicing like we're in this temporary monastic situation here. So, so it's interesting, you know, as you go through the line, just observe, like, your mind's relationship to even the food that's offered here. Because you know, we are kind of putting ourselves at the, uh, as guests of the guest house here. You know, notice the mind's persnicketiness about things. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, why is there not more marbled cheese? Why is there only this much of the marbled cheese? Or, you know, they should label the coleslaw. What is in the coleslaw? You know? <laughs> Any number of, you know, critiques or something like that. And during my time that I lived in this monastery in Sri Lanka, um, the women would not go out for arms round, but we would sit, we come into this uh, dana hall, it's called, and then sit there with our bowls. Um, and then people would come and they would basically like put stuff in the bowl. Right? And uh, it was good practice to notice, even when like there was some subtle sort of like movement to try to be like more or less, you know, <laughs> slight <laughs> angling, like eyebrow, something, you know, just. Like, okay, take what is offered, right? Take what is offered. You know. uh, it's very good practice to notice this, you know, what arises in the heart and the, the preferences that arise all the time. And again, this idea, like, if I get all my preferences met, then I'll be happy, right? Whereas actually, like, is it really going to depend whether I get one or two pieces of cheese, right? You know, the, the mind makes up these stories and then obsesses about them, and then it's actually the obsession itself which is the obstacle to well-being. Not the cheese. That's the secret, right? <laughs> so this one about poverty, you know, so we're actually uh, you know, letting go of a lot of stuff and, and letting go of, of kind of all escape routes for the mind, too. Uh, so letting go while we're here on retreat of you know, music and TV and entertainment. And, uh, you know, very inspiringly, there was the cellular device turn-in ceremony here. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it, it reminded me of actually in um, in the U.S., unfortunately, we have in many cities this gun turn-in program. I, I mentioned this within the first night, right? So because, unfortunately, there's like grand access to all kinds of weapons for no good reason there. Every now and then in cities, they say, like, everyone come and turn in your guns. Like, no questions asked where you got an automatic Uzi or whatever. And then we'll give you some concert tickets or something. You know, there's usually some incentive provided, you know, for this. Um, so people will come and they'll turn in their guns like that and they'll get their concert tickets or, like, gift certificate or something like that. So I was thinking as people were turning in, like, uh, you're getting, like, your freedom of mind. <laughs> you know? This is your concert ticket you get. You know? this is freedom of mind to not have to be obsessed 
with it as much, not to be, have to be tempted with it. Yeah. Uh, and this is a secret that actually renunciation brings freedom. It possibly brings freedom uh, or can facilitate freedom. So this next one, you know, this poverty, chastity, obedience, chastity, uh, it actually doesn't necessarily mean uh, celibacy. It means uh, loyalty or fidelity. So, so apparently it can mean chastity in terms of if you're married to someone and you have vows of just being married to that one and just having um, sex with that one person, then it's like chastity is like keeping your vows. And then if you're uh, celibate, then it means like keeping your vow in that direction too. So there's something about uh, being faithful that's part of that, that vow, which also is like a renunciation of every single whim that arises in your mind, right? Uh, to not follow that. So there again, you know, it's, it's a very common misconception uh, for us that freedom means being able to do exactly what I want to do all the time. You know, that's freedom. In America, there's like a very big uh, philosophical thing. It's like, I should be able to do exactly what I want to do all the time. I'm an individual. Don't fence me in. <coughs> Don't curtail my freedom. Or we'll go to war. You know, something like that. Right? <laughs> but actually, you know, when you look at that more closely, basically what that means is, I want to be run by my cravings. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm going to be run by whatever craving happens to be floating through my mind at that time. And don't tell me no. So when you start to examine that more closely, it's actually not a very free way to live. You know, to have to be driven by everything that comes through the mind and heart. Uh, but we don't know that until we start to look at that. You know. And the mind doesn't like rules. You know, even, even if some, some we has agreed at some point to this, then, you know, something will come up and it's like, oh, but why can't I do this? How come I, like, what, what about this? What about that? So notice this mind arising. You know, sometimes it's like the rebellious mind or the bratty mind or <laughs> the mind of, why can't I do that? Or, Who are they to tell me I can't walk barefoot in the hallways? You know, whatever it is. Right? Any, anything the mind will pick up and you know, uh, want to work with. But. And all of it is basically just good fodder for uh, awareness, for paying attention you know, to how it is for us. So one aspect of this, this fidelity, I think, particularly on retreat, is that um, you know, we're not communicating with each other, we're not interacting with each other in the usual way, and it's unusual, right? So it's an unusual way of being. So in some way you could consider the, the focus, the way that we're asking to pay attention is to uh, one's own experience. And notice when you become disloyal to that. You know, when you become unfaithful to that. You know, when your mind kind of gets drawn into imagining something else or wanting to communicate with someone else or do something else, you know, like... So to me, it reminds me of, like, if you're you know, at a party and you're talking to someone and that person keeps looking over their sh- your shoulder to see if someone better is coming in to talk to you, you know? So it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel that good, right? You know, you're like, well, what about, I'm talking to you right now. What about me? Like, listen to me, so kind of like this, like here, here is the one for you to learn to listen to. You know, here, this one, yourself, your own mind-body system. You know, what if we train to actually be attentive to that one? 
Now that will serve us in being able to be attentive to other ones later. But for now, like this is the party guest you are engaging with, right? You're listening to, you're talking to. So with this this idea of, uh, of chastity, also sometimes it's like you know, uh, also connected very much to metta, you know, to this sense of um, opening to universal love, opening to this friendliness, to this sense of uh, benevolence, as Pascal is describing, and that is accessible to us, and that we can uncover. Really, you know, it's covered over with us that we can actually uncover. And then this one about obedience, which might be the trickiest one of all. So this actually does not mean obedience to uh, schedule necessarily or to um, you know, a person or something like that. But it is definitely an act of renunciation. And it is renunciation of like, whatever it is that the ego self wants to do in any particular moment. And the way in the, the Christian sense was conceived was more of like um, like this idea of the mystic going off to listen to God. You know, so it was obedience to God's will. And there's a famous story about uh, Mother Teresa that someone asked her, you know, well, what do you do when you pray? And this was like a Time magazine interview. What do you do when you pray? And she says, so, so like, uh, I'm listening to God. And then they said, oh, well, what does God say? God's listening to me. So I was like, okay, that's it. <laughs> I think the interviewer didn't know quite what to make of that. So, oh, like, it's just listening. There's just listening, that's it. <laughs> it's just awareness, you know, awareness with love. You know, that's actually the, the practice of obedience in some way. So supporting us in this kind of renunciation is a, another uh, quality characteristic of mind that uh, is not actually spoken about overtly in the Buddhist teaching. And I feel like it's partly because it's there um, culturally, uh, has been there culturally in many Asian cultures, which is about humility. So this idea of like not putting yourself forward all the time, like it's not just about me, um, or letting go of our uh, sense of me in the way that we usually hold it. So Pascal mentioned earlier for you know those who are teachers or whatever it is that you think that you are, right? Uh, try to see through that because this cl- the clinging to identity is a thing that can bring a lot of suffering. So this might come up in different ways. Like you might be like, oh, I could do that better than the nuns, the teachers, the bell ringer, <laughs> the whoever it is, right? Like why are they doing that? I know it better. I, I could do that. Why don't they do it like this? You know, like the mind constantly doing that, right? So the good relaxing thing is that it's actually not your job. <laughs> so you can even tell yourself that, like, just relax. This time is not my job. And believe me, it's nice for it not to have to be your job. Right? Enjoy it while it is not your job. Later you will get to go back to your job where it is your job. <laughs> but for this week, it's like your job is to practice this awareness and this listening. And, and the quality of humility also includes this dimension of uh, curiosity, too. You have curiosity, of openness. 
of being willing to um, sink into not knowing, to rest in not knowing. And, and sometimes I think if, if you do nothing else in your practice, becoming more comfortable with resting and not knowing is a really profound and, and excellent thing to do. Notice when we contract, we want to know again, right? Let it go. So I noticed when I had asked, uh, you know, how many people I've been on retreat for, many, many people raised their hand, so this is good. But also, this means that you are uh, susceptible to the infection of uh, comparison to your last retreat. (laughs) (laughs) Or the idea that uh, it will be like this. Or... Uh, you have created some sense of self as me, the meditator. Mm-hmm. Like me, the meditator, who knows this and does this and understands this already, and all this stuff. So to help free you from that, I'd like to point out that what we're doing in our schedule is basically doing nothing in a variety of postures and paying attention. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. You're just sitting, you know, sitting and breathing. You know, we call it meditation, and yeah, we're talking about different things to do. But actually, it's just really helpful to keep it very simple. You know, just like you're just sitting there, and then you happen to be breathing because you're sitting there. You don't even need to try to breathe. Please, please don't put effort into breathing. You will breathe naturally. Yeah, uh, don't need to breathe in any special or spiritual way. Or anything. Uh, and then just noticing and then it all can unfold actually it all can unfold your investigation uh, of this this life of of this being of of everything of time of death all of it is possible just from sitting here doing absolutely nothing and paying attention it all will be revealed similar in the walking there's a such simplicity to it so basically walking back and forth, doing nothing, and paying attention. That's it. So simple. Deceptively simple. And yet everything can be revealed in that too. Everything we need to know to be completely free can be revealed in any moment of these very simple activities. And as I'd mentioned uh, also in the in the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the uh, main teaching that the Buddha gave on uh, the foundations of mindfulness uh, in the section where he's describing about the body, he does actually describe like the practitioner will uh, bring mindfulness to eating, sleeping, sitting walking, lying down uh, shifting postures reaching forward picking something up, pulling it back getting dressed uh, carrying your bowls uh, urinating, defecating it's actually in there, all of this so (laughs) Basically just to very gently bring this sense of interest, awareness, you know, connection to our whole life here. And the beautiful thing is, like, you have actually nothing else to do. <laughs> Remind yourself this. When your mind's like, well, i got to do this. Now i got to go get this, and i got to put my shoes on, and i got, you know. Like, like, the mind will make it a big project, but it's like, just, just relax. You know? <laughs> just relax, and be present, keep it very simple, and there's a joy in this too. So this is the the big secret that also gets revealed from the conditions of retreat, in which you've left everything behind that you know, and that where your things of comfort and your usual habits of uh, taking refuge, is that there's actually so much joy available, 
so much contentment that's available. Uh, and it doesn't require things, and it doesn't require different conditions. So notice this, even sometime when you're just walking back and forth in a line, and you're actually very happy. You know? At that moment, like everything could have disappeared. Whatever you have in your bank account, your entire wardrobe, you know, all your favorite stuff, your title, your you know, documents, everything. But just notice, like, it's possible to be extremely contented in that moment in this very simple activity. Even if a moment later, you know, the mind seizes up again. Just noticing that that's possible, tremendous freedom there, tremendous possible freedom. So what we get to notice also in retreat is, you know, all the ways in which, even if this is true, uh, the mind is dodging a lot. You know, we are dodging this stuff. So it also becomes this exploration in, like, well, what do I go to for refuge? And is that actually something that is a safe place? Is that a useful place for refuge? So you may not know that uh, for many Americans, uh, conceptually, Canada is considered a place of refuge. (laughs) And uh, I don't know when this came about, if it's from, you know, the Vietnam War when people came over as conscience objectors or something, but now it's it's getting kicked up again recently um, because basically every time there's an election, People make these very strong statements like, if a fill-in-the-blank person gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. (laughs) And and it goes on both sides. Like, if Mitt Romney gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. If Hillary Clinton gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. If Jeb Bush gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. And it happens so frequently now that people are like, we should document this and make them all move to Canada. (laughs) I mean... It also does reveal a sort of American arrogance that, of course, everyone would want to move there. We'll just go, and it'll be great. Um, But you know, it it shows this sign. Like it's like the mind is always looking for some idea of a place uh, that is this refuge. You know, and believe it or not, like your place is that for American malcontents about the political (laughs) election. Uh, and then I'm sure there's, you know, every, everyone's got a different <coughs> refuge that's like some place where someone else lives, and then that person has some idea of refuge from that, and, you know, so on and so forth. Right? So we just get to start to notice, you know, what is, what is the thing that we go to for refuge? And, and this, of course, also re- requires a lot of humility to uh, attend to this. Because yeah. uh, sometimes it could be something like extremely silly or uh, something that we didn't want to admit was our refuge. Uh, just notice like what it is that the mind starts to, to go to as like craving. You know, whether it's oh, if only I could watch this T V show or if only I could watch the ice hockey finals or you know, if only I could uh, get this particular food or drink or if only this or that, you know. And we want to hold this all with a lot of compassion. You know, this is basically sort of like the, the best guess of the unenlightened mind at what will bring happiness. But also, like, don't completely buy into it, you know. As best you can, see these arisings. You know, these are temporary mind objects that arise, a thought. Uh, If we believe it, then that invests some reality into it, and then we inhabit that world in some way. Uh, We inhabit that world, and then we suffer in that world. 
so my favorite story about this is the person who will you know, go into a cave and paints a picture of the tiger and then looks at it and goes, ah, tiger, and runs away screaming. Mm-hmm. So we can see our mind doing this you know, over and over again. It's like, what happened to the tiger? There was no tiger. We made it up. Right? You make up things in your mind, uh, good or bad, and then you inhabit that imaginary world, and then you suffer. And then something happens. A bell rings, someone sneezes, someone coughs. If you're sneezing and coughing, sometimes you might feel bad about it, but you might wake someone up from their imaginary world <laughs> at some point. And like bring the, oh, you're right. Meditation. Right? So, so see how this happens. Just with compassion. I mean, actually, being able to observe delusion in this way, the power of the habits of delusion over and over again, and the way in which we're driven by that, uh, can bring a lot of humility. So be willing to see that. Be willing to see that. That's the first step in freedom, is like seeing what's actually there. We can pretend it's not there, but it doesn't mean that that's not happening. So this quality of humility, and then, of course, this quality of compassion and love. So we're really kind of like funny, wacky creatures. And it's helpful to just hold ourselves with a lot of kindness. Yeah. A lot of kindness and like all our eccentricities and our flaws and our foibles. And then when you put us all together, the flaws and foibles of the group. And then you put us in this institution, the flaws and foibles of the institution. You know. uh, so just trying to hold it lightly you know, with a sense of, of kindness and uh, humor, if possible, a little bit. Towards the the playing out of basically the you know ten thousand joys and sorrows through all these unique manifestations of life, unique manifestations of nature here, yeah. who are just doing the best they can. This very simple activity of sitting and breathing and walking and breathing and eating and knocking around in the courtyard. So the good news with the opportunity to practice dharma is that that which we need to see can be revealed at any moment. And it's actually just our sincerity and our practice, our openness. Uh, We don't need to strive. We don't need to force it. Uh, Just very gently being present and trusting that things will be revealed. We're learning things beyond our ideas of things. So notice when you're judging your practice also, comparing it to your past retreat, comparing it to someone else, comparing your progress to someone who looks uh, younger than you, older than you, better posture than you, whatever. And just try to let it go. Just take it with a big grain of salt. Just keep it very simple, very humble. Just approach with uh, interest, uh, with some kindness if we can. Also, of course, a lot of what we learn in retreat is this uh, intimacy with the aspect of dukkha, of suffering. So that too, it's good to respect and to approach with humility. And we come in touch with a lot of human suffering. A human suffering that is not just our own, but which manifests in our story. 
through the physical body, through memories that come up, uh, through experiences that happen here on retreat, and so on. So as much as we're seeing through as we can the stories that go on, you know, the, the painted pictures that we make up of these things, also just holding with a lot of kindness that when we tap into uh, this human suffering, it is actually a connection to the first noble truth, you know, that there is this dukkha in our life. And not just in our life, but actually in everyone's life. So the more we're actually able to open that, the more that we can be there, be present with everyone's suffering, and be there with the whole world. So, sila samadhi panya, renunciation, 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 and humility and love. So it's a good recipe, and we have five more days to bake. So we'll just sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.